Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's Word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you, um, I see some new faces out here, some people that have, have joined in the, in the year since I was a, a, my wife and I were regular attenders here. Um, I am at Westminster Seminary, which is in Escondido. Uh, I am uh, completing my final year there. My wife and I, we work for Mission to the World, uh, which is a missions organization, and we have been hired to go to Eastern Europe uh, and, and join a church planning endeavor in Eastern Europe. Uh, and actually, it's this church here, uh, formerly Prism Church when I went here, now the chapel, that that commissioned us, my wife and I, to go uh, to Eastern Europe to uh, preach the gospel. I can't say the country that we're going to because we're on a live stream right now. And you never know who's listening on these live streams. Uh, but if you want to know what country we're going to, you can come up and ask me in private and I'll tell you. It's not really a big secret or anything. Uh, it's just we don't want the internet to know, basically. Uh, so we, we are uh, heading out in a year, uh, and, and this church is one of the churches that's sending us. So, of course, um, we, we feel a deep connection. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, if you've joined in the year since, since we have um, moved down to Escondido, I'd love to get a chance to meet you today. So feel free to introduce yourself. Uh, it's a short text this morning. I don't know if you know, you weren't standing for very long when we were reading. Sometimes we're standing longer uh, than other times. Uh, it's pretty brief, and it's a text about ethics. So we're talking this morning about ethics and ethical living. Now, what comes into your mind when I say that I'm going to preach to you this morning about ethics? What kind of emotions or feelings does that create in you? What kind of sermon do you think, what would you expect if I told you that I'm going to preach about ethics? And how do you think that joins together with the kind of theme of this whole series that we've been looking at as we've gone through the whole book of Philippians, that, that theme of the joy of the gospel. How can I preach ethics to you and preach joy to you at the same time? That's the issue that we want to look at. Now, the, the end of Paul's letters uh, are almost always full of these ethical commandments to his people. So he generally begins his letters by laying out theological truth by explaining to them what has happened to them in the, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, and then moving into how that gospel message impacts the way that they live. And so we need to connect this morning the ethical commands that Paul gives in this passage, which are quite strong uh, and quite all-encompassing. We need to derive our, our sense of how to live uh, from what has happened to us in Christ. Um, so we're going to talk about three things this morning. First of all, I want to take a look just uh, and talk a little bit about ethics in general, ethics for Christians. Um, so we'll t- take a look at uh, ethical living in general. Then I'm going to look at the first command that we see in this passage, which I think relates to our, our, our vertical, the vertical aspect of the gospel or our reconciliation to God that occurs in the gospel. Uh, and then I want to look at the, the second commandment, uh, uh, the second instruction that Paul gives, which I think relates more to the horizontal dimension of the gospel or how the gospel reconciles us to each other as Christians. Okay? So ethics in general, 
vertical reconciliation with God and its ethical implications, horizontal reconciliation with each other and its ethical implications. Does that make sense? All right, let's begin with uh, ethics in general. Now, Christmas season is over, which means Christmas movie season is over. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see many of our wonderful Netflix Christmas movies that they release every year. Just, you know, the, the silliest uh, romantic comedies. My, my wife loves them. We watch almost all of them every year. Anyone that comes out, it's like we, we watch it. So we watched this movie that came out this Christmas called Love Hard. Did anyone, anyone see this movie? Love Hard? It was, it was a, 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 you know, a fun little, silly little, forgettable. I, I mean, I think about it now. I watched it a couple weeks ago. I almost can't even remember what happened in it. Uh, so these movies are, are very silly. But one of the things that was interesting about it was the, 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 the romance in it. The, the lead male character was played by uh, Jimmy Yang, uh, and so it was a it was a um, white woman and an, an Asian American male that uh, were um, the, the romantic leads in this movie. Um, so it's a, a a little bit un, unusual. You don't always see that that sort of pairing. Um, I watched the movie. I didn't really think much about uh, how the uh, Asian American character was being represented in this film. But after I read it, after I watched it. I, I was on, on Twitter and I saw that somebody had tweeted out this um, article about how issues with the way that this Asian American male character was represented um, and some concerns they had about it. Uh, and I, I read the article and I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't really quite connect with what the author was saying. I didn't understand it. But, you know, I, it's not, I, I'm not Asian American, so I, I can't really say how, how accurate it was. Um, and so I, I, I read it and respected it. Now, I, I think largely... This is something that is, is pretty common in our, in our culture today. There's an awareness that for many years, um, representation uh, was uh, diverse for some people, and for other ethnic groups, um, the, the representation of characters tended to fall into certain stereotypical patterns. So I think it's, it's largely a positive development that there's a concern that any type of, like, uh, the character that is presented in media is... Uh, any, any ethnicity is allowed a diverse representation. And, it, it, and we're not like perpetuating certain uh, ethnic stereotypes in, in our film. So I think that's largely a positive thing uh, in, in our modern culture. Um, I, I'm not cr- critiquing that, even if I don't always uh, connect or understand the, the specific criticism that's being made of a, of a character or a movie, like I did with this movie, Love Heart. Now, I think it would be great if we could also see positive representation of evangelical Christians in media, though. So I, I think that that's like the next step. Uh, almost every time you see uh, a, a character in, in media, in a movie or TV show, who is a, a character like, kind of like us, a, a person that takes their faith seriously, that goes to church regularly, that thinks maybe uh, their Christianity is about more than just a cultural identification, but actually affects and, and means something to their lives. Uh it generally tends to be kind of a negative portrayal. Uh, do you guys agree with me? I, I think that's generally true. I remember uh, one of my favorite shows I used to watch back in the day, 30 Rock. Anyone watch 30 Rock? Uh, funny show. There's, there's one uh, scene in which the, the lead character played by Tina Fey, Liz Lemon, she's, there's this guy that she's interested in. She's gone on a couple dates with him. And she happens to see him on the street and he walks into a church. And she is just like horrified at the possibility that maybe she has inadvertently started to date a person who is serious about Christianity. Uh, and she ex- just sees with contempt to one of her friends as she tells him this story 
about could she possibly be dating uh, a Christian? And I think she says, gosh, are we going to have to spend our Saturdays trying to convert rollerbladers in Central Park? Uh, which, you know, kind of a funny line, but still, uh, I, I mean, she's just like uh, completely uh, uh, contemptuous of this idea that uh, somebody that she's interested in romantically could possibly be a Christian. Now, why do you think that is? I, I think there's a couple uh, stereotypes around Christians that relate to their their the, the ethical way in which um, I think Christians are seen as, you know, the, the way that Christians perceive of their ethical life. Um, first of all, I think popularly, ethics for Christians is perceived as uh, primarily self-denial or uh, something that is good and fun Christians can't do or can't have. You know, have you ever heard that? Um, I can't remember where I saw this, but somebody said once, you know, how do you know if a food is healthy uh, if you don't want to eat it? <laughs> So is it is it good? Are you excited about eating it? Well, it's not healthy. That's kind of, I, I think, how, how uh, ethics for the Christians are, are portrayed. Is something fun? Is it a good time? Well, if you're a Christian, you can't do it. Uh, there's a, a famous quote by H.L. Mencken, a, a, a 20th century um, journalist, uh, and he was talking about the, the, the form of Christianity that was practiced in early America, Puritanism. And he said, Purita- Puritanism is the haunting sense that somewhere someone is happy. <laughs> uh, so, so Christianity, our, our religion, is primarily about uh, policing things so that we that, that we can't do and denying ourselves things that are fun. And I'll be honest, before I really took my faith seriously as a, growing up as a as a Christian, uh, and when I got into college, that's kind of what I what I felt about the Christians. Like anything fun that I could do now in college, the, the Christians were not were not doing. Another reason why I think. Um, we, uh, the ethical life of Christians is largely perceived negatively, uh, is that there's a sense that um, Christians feel themselves, because of their, their ethics, that they're superior to others, that they're better than other people. They kind of hold themselves above. I mean, how many, how many pr- depictions do you see in media of Christians and they're, they're like, uh, like looking down on other people because of the, the evil of their lives? Uh, that's a very common way that, that Christians are depicted. Um, so it, because of uh, because we don't do things and we do do other things, we're superior. We think of ourselves as better than others. <clears throat> a third reason why I, I think that uh, this depiction of ethical life for the Christian is largely negative in media is there, there's a sense that uh, in reality Christians are faking it. That they're they're just pretending like they don't want to do those things that they're not doing. That ultimately, uh, what they present publicly, the person they present publicly, is different from the person that they are privately. What they really think on the inside is different. And if you if you really were able to penetrate and find out what they were doing secretly, you find that they're pretty much living the same way as everyone else. They're just hiding it from others. Now, how often are depictions of, of Christians in media, ultimately, they, they end up uh, depicting them as hypocrites? <clears throat> Now, be honest, these three things, this ethics as self-denial, ethics as superiority, ethics as hypocrisy, I think, you know, there, there is some truth historically to um, why, why this perception would be very popular. Um, if you think about the history of, of uh, Christian, uh, uh, Christian asceticism, 
um, th- there was a, for, for centuries and still today, there was a sense that becoming a real Christian, becoming a really holy person, meant living as miserable and awful a life as you possibly could. Right? In, in the 5th and 6th centuries, this is a true story, there was a, a movement of people called stylites. What stylites would do is they would build a pillar and then they would go up on top of the pillar and they would live there for, for the, their whole life on top of this pillar. Uh, that, it was like they were denying themselves even access to the, the whole world. And these men, called stylites, were seen as like being particularly holy and, and like admirable people in like 5th and 6th century culture. Um, so there's, there's definitely a tradition of uh, that holiness or ethical living means living as miserable a possible life as you can, denying yourself anything that you would ever get any pleasure from. Certainly, I think there's a tendency of Christians to hold themselves above others. That's, that's definitely true. Our ethical lives can develop a sense of superiority. It's easy uh, to, to um, look down on people uh, if you live differently than them. Now, I, I think that's, that's not just Christians and their ethical life, though, that's possible. How often do you see people that uh, you know, live in an ethical way according to their own ethics, like you know, maybe people that work out a lot, or uh, people that you know rise and grind every morning, uh, and they they end up like presenting their own way of life as superior to other people's lives, right? So, so that that's kind of like a, a, a universal impulse. If you've if you've been able if you've been enabled to have some sort of self discipline over your life, so that you live uh, according to a, a pattern that is recognized as, as a good way of living, it, it tends to breed a sense of superiority in the in the person that has achieved that. You guys agree with that? Yeah. And then, of course, uh, obviously, you don't have to look far to start finding hypocrisy in, 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 in the church. You don't have to look very far to find hypocrisy, probably in your own life. There is a gap between what we aspire to be ethically and what we actually are. Uh, sometimes that gap is more um, intentional than others. There are people that are intentionally hypocritical, uh, but all of us, I think, are aware um, that we have not lived up to the what we aspire to be um, ethically. So, I mean, ultimately, all this, though, uh, stems from a popular perception that Christianity is primarily an ethical religion. A, a, a perception that Christianity is about changing the way that you live in order to attain a certain goal. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I think that even people that grow up in the church, maybe even us in, in the course of our day-to-day lives, can uh, maintain in our heads this idea that the ultimate goal of Christianity is to change the pattern of our life so that we can find ourselves pleasing God more. I, I know that this is true because I used to work in campus ministry. I worked uh, with the navigators at USC, and when when we would we meet new students, we take all of the new students that join our ministry through um, this. We'd call it we call it the uh, a gospel meeting. We meet up with a student, sit down with them, have lunch with them, and these were often uh, freshman kids that came out of church backgrounds, and we'd ask them a, a series of questions and kind of get to know them. And one of the questions was. Uh, you know, if you die today and you're, you know, at the pearly gates and St. Peter asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What will you say? And almost everyone, almost everyone would say some variation of, 
the ethics of my life are good enough. I have, I have lived a good enough life ethically. So St. Peter should let me into heaven. So this is, this is an extremely common perception. I think, uh, uh, it's, it's, and, and what, it, you know, what it kind of stems from is the fact that all human beings have a general religious impulse. And that general religious impulse says you need to do enough to please God. You need to somehow appease your creator and get in on his good side. It deep in the heart of every human being that's ever lived and, and present in the religions that humans develop is some sort of uh, means of appeasing God through sacrifice, uh, some moral or ethical standard that if you come close enough to it, then you are you, you have made God happy with you and you can enter into heaven. Now, ultimately, that general religious impulse that is present in every human being who has ever lived, we know its origins as Christians. We know where it comes from. The Bible teaches us where this general religious impulse comes from. Because it says that when Adam was created, when Adam was made, God made him in covenant with himself. God set and established a covenant with man that every man, every person that has ever lived stands underneath that covenant and stands in that relationship with God. The same covenant that Adam had. The same relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. uh, All men are born into. And that relationship is... If you obey the law I give you perfectly, then you will attain to eternal life. If you disobey, then you will be punished and die. So this this general religious impulse has a theological origin in in the covenant that we were created under. What theologians call the covenant of creation. Obey and live, disobey and die. And so all the religions of the world and all the impulses of our natural heart say, if I am able to attain to an ethic that is close enough to God's standard, and if I can somehow like make up for where I fail through some sort of religious appeasing or atonement of God, then I can be in the right. I can, I can find eternal life. And when I die, I won't have to be afraid. This is the universal religion of mankind. It sits in all the religions of the world. And there is a constant temptation and tendency for us to transform Christianity so that it resembles that sort of religion. And Christianity becomes a religion in which we just have been given maybe a better ethic than the other religions of the world by God. A more true, more accurate ethic. But we also have to live according to that ethic. Because we can't quite perfectly live live according to it, then you know something happened with Jesus. You know his death has something to do with like making up for where we fail. So we got we do like ninety percent ethical living, and then the death of Jesus like covers that last ten percent that we failed. Boom, we're good. And that's why why Christians will often say, "Why should I get into heaven?" Well, because I've done enough. Jesus Christ, help me. And then I, I completed it. I did the rest. <clears throat> Friends, the true Christian religion is a mystery. It is something that natural man could not invent. 
It is not something that we could come up with according to the way that we were created. It is something that is revealed by God. It is unexpected. And ultimately, what it is, the Christian religion is a declaration that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we, God's people, have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, if we have been justified, we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is established at the moment of justification, at the moment of salvation. Therefore, our salvation in Christ, the way by which we are made right with Him, is not 90% our ethical living, 10% the death of Jesus Christ. It's not even 90% the death of Jesus Christ, 10% our ethical living. Our being set right with God is 100% the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the ethical life that we live is not connected, is not a cause of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The order of ethical life has been reversed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religions of the world say, obey and do good and be ethical So that you might find salvation. The mystery of the Christian religion is that it says salvation is proclaimed to you in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And therefore, out of that, flowing from that, live in a certain way. Theologians often refer to what's called the Order of salvation. Or they, they have like a, a fun Latin term for it. But I was told in preaching class, never use like Latin terms when you preach. So I'm not, I'm going to say order of salvation, not ordo salutis as they say. Dang it. So the, the order of, of salvation is, uh, as we see in the scriptures, that, that our salvation proceeds according to a certain pattern. It has certain steps that occur in time. So they, they would say that first comes our calling, then comes our justification. So the gospel comes and like summons us, uh, summons us to faith. And then we're justified. In other words, we're, we're set right with God for all time. And then the order of salvation says, then the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or makes us holy. So the, the, the process by which we are made holy in our sanctification follows our justification. And reversing that order causes us to be confused and and, and leads to all, I think, all those like misunderstandings about the ethical life of Christians flow from reversing that order. Okay? Christian ethics are not primarily about self-denial, but rather about filling ourselves with what is good. Being liberated to pursue and enjoy what is good. They do not puff us up. How can Christian ethics puff us up if we maintain that our salvation is for all time determined not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us? 
And in fact, we are incapable in our own power of doing anything good. How can our our ethical life make us proud then? If it's entirely dependent on the movement and power of the Holy Spirit in us. And then third, it's true. We will never be in this life perfect in our ethical uh, compliance. We, we, we will never fully um, reach the goal that we strive towards. <clears throat> uh, but Christian ethics are not impossible. We're not destined to be hypocritical. We can be open about our failures, but also aware that the Holy Spirit is empowering us. Okay, that's, that's a bit about Christian ethics. That, it's so important Whenever we talk about uh, about ethics, our ethical pa- uh, uh, these passages that are telling us to do something, we have to remember that the whole book up to this point has been about what Christ has done for us, and it leads into what we do. Uh, and, and if we if we isolate these passages so that we can reverse that order, then we're going to run into problems in our in our ethical life. So let's talk about uh, this first command, which. Uh, I'll read it again. I know it was a while since we read the passage. Um, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, Paul loves these like long lists of things. Read Paul's letters. He's always like listing stuff. I also love that he says, Finally, because if you remember, he's already said finally once in this letter. So this is like second finally. This is like his final finally. The, the real finally in the book. Uh, so if you notice here, this, this like ethical command is kind of unusual. It's not uh, don't do this. It's not stop this. It's entirely a positive exhortation towards something. It's entirely a commending of things rather than a denial of things. Now, I'm not going to go through and, and talk about each one of the things on this list. Okay, I'm not going to define for you what true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. I think that would get a little bit monotonous. Also, I, I don't think that Paul is necessarily meaning to discern separate and different categories of things by each word he's using. He's just employing kind of a rhetorical strategy and device to kind of like use all these different adjectives to um, strengthen the sense of the command. Whatever is true, noble, honorable, etc., etc. All these things uh, that are good. We can kind of summarize it as, as something that is good. If something is good, then it is true. If it is good, then it is pure. If it is good, then it is lovely, etc., etc., etc. The creation, when we think about things that are good, to, to, to ground this command in, in, in theology or in scripture, uh, we have to remember that um, when God created the world, he looked at it and he said, this is very good. Uh, I think that our, our tendency to interpret ethical commands as asceticism or as denial of things comes from a misunderstanding of the, the goodness of the world as God created it. There, there's a long tradition in Christian theology and Christian history of saying that uh, what is spiritual or what is non-material is good and what is physical or material has some 
inherent a problem with it. That there's some inherently corrupting aspect to, to what is physical or natural. Uh, in fact, in, in, in Roman Catholic theology, they teach that even man as, crea- as he created in his physical part, there was like this tendency towards the indulgence of the flesh. You know, your, your fleshy desires, your sexual desire, your uh, hungers, your desire for, for leisure and, and pleasure, that there's something inherently suspicious about that, about that desire, even as it was created by God. But to that we say no. When God created man, with all his desires, with everything that makes him man, he looked at him and he said, this is very good. It's so, it's, it's not surprising then that when, when, when Paul lays out this ethical command, he's commending us towards what is good. The problem is not that the physical things in this world are inherently corrupting. Okay? The problem is in the sin that is in man. <clears throat> and having, having dealt with sin, therefore, the Holy Spirit can enable us to pursue what is good and, and, and in a way that is, that is uh, um, positive. <clears throat> um, I, I, I like to think about, uh, we can kind of like reorient our model of, of sanctification, of, of, of growing in our ethics uh, around um, Exodus and the, um, the liberation of God's people from Egypt. So in, in this, this model that is laid out for us in the Old Testament, uh, which is, is a, a recurring model that the New Testament uses to describe our salvation as Christians, is that the, the, the Israelites were held in bondage. They were held in slavery in Egypt. Uh, and so they were kind of helpless uh, it, 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 with the, the, this external power that was over them and that bound them and to which they, they could not uh, free themselves from. Uh, and into that, God sent his mediator, Moses, to, uh, by his power, through the, 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 the demonstrated power of God, liberate, break the chains of Egyptian slavery and bring God's people out of slavery and into his promised land. And upon entry into the promised land, there is delivered to them the law, the ethical procedures by which they are to live as God's people in the promised land. So there, there again we see that, that mysterious model that's revealed to us in Scripture and Scripture alone. First, this external power that, had, that, that, is, that keeps us under bondage that's broken through the mediator and the liberating power of God. And upon being delivered from that, we are brought into the land of milk and honey, that which is good. This is the, the model that, that Paul presents here when, he, when he's commending these good things to them. He's saying that having broken the power of sin, God is, is bringing us into the enjoyment of what is good. We are liberated from sin in order in order to experience what is good. We cannot experience what is truly good unless we've been liberated from sin. And this is, this is so profoundly different from the sense that people have of Christianity as a religion primarily in which you're not allowed to have fun. Christianity says the opposite. That under sin, the things that could be good no longer are good. The things that in themselves could be enjoyed to the glory of God, now bring death. 
<clears throat> There's a, a, a recurring uh, motif in church history uh, in which the, the, the power of the, the, the full nature of the gospel, in which I preach to you that, that God saves you, not because you've done good things, but in spite of the evil that you've done. I can tell you that if you come now to receive salvation in Christ, you need to do no other thing. You do not need to atone for your past sins to find salvation in Jesus Christ. There, in Christian history, there's been suspicions of that liberating full gospel message out of fear that maybe if we don't like hold on to some sort of ethical requirement that we're going to end up with a bunch of people that are just openly sinning. They're like, oh, I don't need to uh, first atone for all my sins before I can be saved? Well, then let's just go out and sin all the more. What's to re- stop people? You can understand the fear in the heart of the preacher. If I, if I really tell them that they don't need to atone for their sins, they don't need to first become really, really holy before they can be saved, you know, am I going to have, how will I then enforce holiness in my church? How will I ensure that my people are holy? And so I, there's, a, there's like a, a, a transformation of the gospel. This is, recur- this is what the, um, in, in the times of the Reformation, the uh, church in Rome was preaching this sort of gospel, uh, recurring. There was a, a huge controversy in Scotland. I won't tell you all the details about in which this fear uh, in the 20th century, there's been fears over that. If I really preach the gospel to you, how will I ensure that you live uh, an, an ethical life? Well, Paul already addresses this concern. In fact, Paul anticipates, the Bible anticipates this fear. Because it says in Romans 6, it says, you know, it, it, in, in talking about if we're saved by grace, then, then shall I not go on sinning more so that grace will abound even more? You can see the argument is, uh, I'm receiving this grace from God that's overcoming my sin. If I sin more, I'll get even more grace. Paul says, Paul's answer to that is, if you think that way, then you have not even understood the nature of what you're being saved from. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the power of bondage. Sin is the power unto death. Sin is what is evil. Sin brings unhappiness. Sin brings every evil that exists in this world. This is what the gospel liberates you from so that you can go unto enjoyment and joy in the ethical life of the Christian. The ethical life that God lays out for us is the best possible, happiest possible life that anyone can live on this earth. Far from being about self-denial, it is about bringing you into the fullness of enjoyment that is possible in this sin world, this world of sorrow and death, the best possible life, the happiest possible life is what, what we are liberated unto by being taken out of sin. <clears throat> so I, I really want to emphasize that, that the, the three effects that, are, that the, the liberation of the gospel brings, it, it changes our mind so that we can understand and discern what is good. It frees us from the powers of bondage that held us, the powers of sin. And then it empowers us unto the enjoyment 
of what is good. So we could talk about ethics in the context of joy. In fact, joy itself is one of the ethics of the Christian life. Paul commands us, uh, as, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Paul commands us to rejoice. Happiness is a Christian ethic in that sense. <clears throat> okay, let's go on. I, I think I've made my point there sufficiently. Christianity is not about self-denial, but about being liberated unto joy and unto what is good. That is good news. So let's talk about the horizontal implication. Now, this is the command that, that Paul gives. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this has always been like a really sobering command to give because I feel like I don't, I don't want to say that myself to you guys. Guys, what you've seen in me. I mean, you got to be really confident that you're living an ethical life if you're going to tell that to people, right? Uh, this word learned in, in, in the Greek, I'm breaking more of my uh, preaching class rules by telling you Greek words. The word in the Greek is uh, manthano, which is the root word for disciple or learner. So th- this idea that uh, within the Christian church that we should learn from each other, that, that this is the substance of what we call discipleship, is kind of a, a present here in this text. Now, the gospel, one of the, the primary implications of it, uh, uh, second only to its reconciliation that it works between us and God, the way that it, it, it uh, clears away the, the, the debt of sin that we owe to God and, and, and raises us to new life in him so that we have peace with him, <clears throat> the secondary effect of that, an, an inevitable consequence of it, is that it reconciles us to each other. And Paul's two big, if you, if you could like boil all of Paul's letters down to two main points, it'd be that you're justified in the death of Jesus Christ and you're reconciled to each other. God is in the business of creating a people for himself. He's not in the business of calling isolated individuals to sit up on pillars like stylites and try and be as holy as possible. What he is summoning is a people for himself. He has always been doing that. To return to that model of Exodus, when God calls his people out of Egypt, he calls a people. He does, he's not like individually pulling these people out of Egypt. He summons them together. So our ethical life is inseparable from our community life. These two things are, are intertwined. The commandments that we see in Scripture about ethics are, are both about our personal conduct and about the way that we live in community. Now, what is God doing in the world right now? God is, is calling men to faith. How does he call men to faith? Through his community, through his church. He is proclaiming justification to them. How does he justify us? He justifies us in the death of Christ, something that we all share in as a community. What is God doing in the world right now? He is sanctifying his people. He does this by the Holy Spirit only, only in the context of his church, of his people. It is necessary 
for sanctification to proceed as God intends it to, that we are in community with each other. This has been a, a, a recurring error in the church that conceives of sanctification as something best done out in the desert, out alone, in a monastery, isolated from the world. No, sanctification is done within the context of the world, by the church which is living in the world, together with each other. We need each other to be sanctified. It's not a solitary endeavor. It's what we have heard and seen and received from our brothers and sisters in the church that enables us to be sanctified. This is true for two reasons. First of all, the the great part of the ethical commands of Scripture are community commands. They're commands to love. How does Jesus summarize the moral law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not living with your neighbors, then uh, a big part of the moral law cannot even be practiced by you. What is the command that Jesus says? The new commandment that he gives them? A new commandment I give you? Love one another. The ethics of the Christian require us to live in community with each other. There's no other way that it can be practiced. Okay. Let's go into the conclusion. I've talked about this vertical reconciliation this, uh, this uh, being liberated from sin uh, so that we can be summoned and called under the pursuit of what is good, what is beautiful. And then I've talked about this uh, horizontal dimension of our, of our ethical life, that we are reconciled as God's community. And therefore, we, we need each other not only to know how to be sanctified, but the actual practice of our sanctification can occur only when we're in relationship with each other. Those are the two, the two aspects of ethics. They're so vital to understand and learn. Now, I, wa- I want to end by telling you a secret about this process. It's very easy when I lay it out like this. When we talk about love in the abstract or pursuing what is good in the abstract, it sounds great, right? It's all, all laid out beautifully. Go forth and do this. The actual day-to-day experience of it, when you go home, look at the person across from you at the dinner table, and realize that that's the person that you're required to love. That's where this gets difficult. We talked about how um, the ethics of the Christian, uh, or of anyone really, can produce this sense of superiority in us. We want to break that down entirely. When we get into the actual difficulty of turning away from what is evil, turning unto good, of loving people that hurt us, that are flawed, that themselves are imperfect. We can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only do this because we are a people that have been liberated from sin by God's power, that have been gifted with, that have been indwelt with His Holy Spirit. This is the only possible way that the ethics of the Christian life can be, can be done. It is not within you. This is why it, 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 it cannot produce a sense of superiority in us. Because in ourselves, we are, we, are, we are not capable of truly pursuing what is good. We are not capable of loving the people around us. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that a community 
which is rooted in the pursuit of what is joyful. Only in, in the power of the Holy Spirit can that be created and can that flourish. And so I am this morning summoning you to sanctification. I am summoning you to it on the basis of what has already happened to you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I am doing so only with the knowledge that it is the Holy Spirit that will do it. The Holy Spirit that will do it in us and in our world. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.